Good afternoon, everybody. It's uh, <laughs> Wednesday, February 8th. It's 5 p.m. This is the Mocha Live live stream and podcast. Uh, my name is Max Cohen, lead writer for the Museum of Crypto Art. Joining me as he does every week is Colborn Bell, founder of the Museum of Crypto Art. And joining us specifically this week, our first ever guests on the Mocha Live podcast, performance artists Lori Baldwin and Una. Lori, Una. It's Hello. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So for those of you listening um, that have not heard of Una or Lori Baldwin before, uh, A, you're doing yourselves a huge disservice, and B, you must not be very up to date on what we've been doing at the museum uh, because <laughs> published an essay about Una and Lori uh, last week called Breastfeeding the Blockchain, which more than just a clever name, also pretty well encapsulates, if I do say so myself, their brilliant work of performance art, Milking the Artist, which they debuted uh, at Miami Art Basel this year in early December. Um, Una, uh, if you want to just kick us off, can you just tell me what the reaction was right after that piece kind of went down? Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you. And thanks, Mocha, and whoever is here, thanks. Um, I mean, like the actual performance or the kind of culmination of the piece, which culminates in the wallet wash. Yeah, and yes, no. So, so what I'm thinking is you guys do this piece, right? It's the beginning of December. You come into Art Basel, you show it off. There's a ton of buzz. What was that immediate reaction like just thereafter? Um, if I'm being totally candid, absolute dread. <laughs> it was kind of wild. And I, I, it just had a, it had a reaction that kind of took on legs of its own. And, and I really wasn't really kind of expecting the ways in which it was, uh, it was responded to. And I think that um, first time that a piece of art that I've done, especially a performance that I've done has gotten that many eyeballs. So I think any time that as an artist, you start to realize like, oh, wow, this art is being seen and perceived by a lot of people. There's a certain kind of death of the author that I experienced particularly, which was like, wow, look at all these asshole idiots on the internet. Like, how do I kind of engage with their feedback? And where does the art relay? And you know, it's been really exciting to see the evolution of it go kind of from being picked up by like TMZ as like a uh, provocation to it being considered by Mocha as like a piece of performance art and giving this like rich history, you know, even the even the dissemination of the art piece has kind of been its own type of performance. But Laurie, am I, am I missing anything? Do you want to add some color? I mean, the only color I would add that was for me personally, <laughs> I think dread, I, I don't, I would say dread, but it was like, it was an intensity that I could not have anticipated um, because I, I've been a performance artist and this has been my profession for over 10 years, but I've also never had a piece that has like taken on legs like this after the act itself. And then I found myself in like a total crazy nutso whirlwind and in the middle of central Florida visiting relatives who I haven't seen for years. So I was in this like really, really split dual reality where on one hand I'm like, going on a like an airboat ride and looking at crocodiles and then I like get onto my phone as soon as we're off the airboat and the publicist and then it's like everything is like exploding and popping on socials and it's like trying to like call like have these group calls and this is like not who I normally it was just like it was a lot and then you know granted my relatives were like very sweet and supportive but also like a little older and like trying to like understand and catch up. And I'm like, I honestly don't even understand myself what the fuck's going on right now. So it was, it was wild. 
So um, just for a very brief summary of the piece, and please somebody stop me if I'm not doing a very good job, um, but Milking the Artist featured uh, Una and Lori at Art Basel kind of dominating very, I guess, haphazardly or suddenly, uh, kind of like squarish, whitish corner of the, uh, of the space. It was performed twice at the Scope Performance Center or the Scope Fair. I'm not sure what the exact name for it was. Um, and also at the main Art Basel Convention Center. That's Colborn's cat. I'm going on mute. Um, and Una opens her bodice and her bodice. I've never said that word out loud. There's a pair of buxom breasts underneath that are uh, squirting milk into a glass that Lori is honestly like very um, dexterously um, following around, um, trying to catch as much milk as possible. Um, the milk is then, uh, open for bidding, not only as the physical glass of milk, um, but also an equivalent NFT. So that's kind of the immediate performance of the thing. Um, and I learned about this piece from Colborn who sent, uh, y'all my way. So Colborn, I was wondering how you first, um, kind of came into milking the artist. <laughs> I wish I had a memory like that. I don't know. Did you reach out, Una? I think Una might have messaged. I am pretty sure that I sent you a DM being like, Colvon, are you thirsty? Do you want a glass of milk? <laughs> <laughs> and then we ended up getting on the phone. Turns out I was. I'm perpetually thirsty. Well, one of the reasons that I find... I don't drink milk, though, so... Are you an oat milk man? I like oat milk and almond milk and... Yeah. <laughs> I've recently gone back to whole milk or like real milk after like a 10 year sojourn uh, to the non-dairy milk side. And as a kid, I only really drank like skim because my dad was big on health. So it was only ever skim milk and like rarely 2%. And now I have whole milk in the fridge. And every time I pour it in like a cup of coffee, it's like this thick clotted stream. Um, I'm just so unused to it. I don't want to be alarmist, but I'm not convinced our stream is actually working. <laughs> <laughs> On Twitter. <clears throat> oh, is really? that true? Should we do a little check? Well, Twitter, at least for me, seems like it was down in the moments before I um, kind of reached out to everyone. My messages weren't working. I had a short freak out because I couldn't send the link to Lori. Um, the good news is, whether people are with us now or whether they find us later, <laughs> uh, I think it's we're, we're recording. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'll leave that. Something's in. happening. <laughs> Either for yeah. now or for posterity. Something's happening. If it's worth anything, my Twitter's also not like the message. Nothing's loading. It's it's kind of like complaining. Oh, so you just broke it. Too much traffic. Yeah, I think that must have been it. As somebody who's in and out of the uh, crypto art world, if Twitter were to just implode right now and what we're actually experiencing is the sudden um, but permanent death of Twitter, how much would that affect your artistic livelihood? <laughs> um, livelihood or like what I've been doing up until now, kind of not, like none at all. It really mm -hmm. wouldn't impact me. I've only like I have like a little over 100 followers now and I only went onto Twitter like a couple of weeks ago because it became clear that like, okay, I guess I have to like add another social media to my plethora. Like I, I kind of hate social media, so it's fine, whatever. So yeah, if Twitter implodes, I don't care. It's, it's fine. It can die. I'm sure we'll find another way. There will always be another way. 
Una, how would you feel? Oh my god, if if Twitter died, I think this character would just live fucking nowhere. <laughs> oh, no. It'd be like a distant memory and people's like short, short attention spans, you know. Mm. Um I really I didn't have socials before, you know, um yeah, before I was born, obviously, and I was only born one year ago, really a year and a bit ago now, but I didn't have socials mm. before I was born, so same thing, you know joined Twitter and I remember the days and it was like cool I have like 80 followers and like 75 followers and then going to live events is really the only way that I've like managed to grow it and I kind of hate it if I'm being honest it feels like this disgusting ball and chain that you know if I lean a little bit more into it I get to have some more fun but it's just so frustrating how centralized the algorithms are and like you know I'll give you kudos like this background image I absolutely love it the mocha podcast like kind of like, I think it's funny. It's, it's so amazing. obvious that an algorithm cannot read it. Therefore, it goes nowhere. And it's mm. really frustrating to kind of like be trying to create art that doesn't have this aesthetic appeal that an algorithm likes. And mm. simultaneously trying to only pump it out on a very centralized algorithm. So back to you, Max. <laughs> I mean, I completely agree. Um, you know, I, especially as I publish writing or as the museum publishes writing, we can only really, you know, the algorithm doesn't see, you know, a 4,000 word article. It sees a tweet about it. That's usually pretty punchy and uh, maybe a couple of pulled quotes, but the hard work is not there for the audience, right? The algorithm itself, Twitter as a free thinking, potentially sentient algorithmic entity has no idea about the depth of my insight or lack yeah. thereof. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you know, that was interesting too. Cause one thing that Laurie and I tried to do with, um, the wallet washing was like okay let's try and beat the system and so we did a little bit of like um pumping so we did artists and influencers and that was basically like we would pay people to quote retweet and that was at the time that the algorithm changed and quote retweets started to do horribly like mm. no one started to see them so it was really interesting to kind of like try and be keeping up with this kind of algorithm and it's simultaneously just like shifting but not quite telling you where it's shifting right it's this like dark shadowy puppeteering that happens and it I mean was really happy with the ability to kind of pay other artists to retweet and it was a funny way of subverting like influencer culture for me and um really negating this idea of like it's worth paying people <laughs> like if we're all in an ecosystem together then it's worth having some method of like redistribution of kind of the attention um, but I was really and I continue to be really frustrated with this like paradigm that you know a few people have more clout or more access or they go farther and that's what makes something like pop in NFT Twitter um so I guess this is part of my bitterness I don't know I'm being bitter and like Colborne I'll pass it to you because you've been very bitter on Twitter lately yeah, Colborn. You know, <laughs> yes. You've been doing this for quite some time, right? Working within the crypto art world and especially with the algorithm and such. Um, you must have some kind of an understanding of it, I would presume. Have you seen like dramatic changes like this before? It's it's just so brutal. I don't know. Have I? Probably. It's like, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's imp it's just impossible. I, I can't make any sense of it. I don't try to make any sense of it. I don't think people should take it so seriously. People seem to take it very, very seriously. My grand conspiracy, and I'm like the all-time conspiracist, 
is that like people that have outsized influence on Twitter control armies of bots. Like, I don't think any of this is real. And I think it's all programmed and you can pay people to kind of program it for you. And then it just is almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point of, of all of this fake attention might attract a couple real people. Um, but I can say that like when we had 5,000 users, we got just as much, if not more attention views uh, impressions than we do now at like 75. Interesting. I remember Una, the first time we, uh, we met, you had told me that as a gift, you were going to send me 10,000 Twitter followers. And I begged you not to knowing the effect that would have on my psyche. Um, <laughs> one day, darling, one day, one day. I mean, I yeah. personally like on my Instagram, I just fucking went and I bought 10,000 followers. And then I have like on the, on my first highlight, it's like, what if I told you that Una wasn't real and all of these followers were fake and all this like, just putting it out there. But the funny thing is like, people will still go to my page when I first meet them and they'll be like, oh, you have 10,000 followers. And I'll be like, yeah, they're bots. But for a second, it hits this register of like, oh, there's some degree of importance that we haven't managed to separate kind of, I, I don't want to be so rude and call it like sheep mentality because it's not quite sheep mentality. But it is like a linkage of a high numerical value to an automatic sense of worth, which like if we want to come full circle back to Milk and the Artists, that's why we fucking pumped the bag. Because it was like, you know, in order for people to think that something's important, you need to attach a really big price tag to it. And in order for people to think that you're cool and you have clout and your artwork matters, you need to have a lot of fake followers. Um, so, yeah. Well, I, if, I, if I may, it's very interesting, I think the schism with the crypto art, you know, minded performance art that you two have recently done with performance art as it's historically been done where you don't have an imaginary audience like you do potentially here. Right. And Lori, maybe you could speak to this more having, you know, a long history I know of um, like theatrical and performance art, but you know, you see physically the amount of people that are witnessing the performance instead of, I think what a lot of people are dealing with on Twitter artists of all kinds where your audience is kind of imaginary and kind of something you have to like infer rather than see in front of you. Yeah. I mean, it changes for me personally, it changes completely the nature of the performance. I think it also changes the nature of like my modality, how I even would frame it, like everything. I think like for me, the audience, if we're talking about live performance, when you're like actual bodies in a room, like the the liveness of the actual happening the impermanence of it and i think like on an energetic level that exchange that's happening between i'm here you're here we're having this thing together this piece would not literally not be the same if you weren't here if you're doing something that's like purely digital or to imaginary audience that you don't know don't see have no like direct connection to i think it it can how do i say it it can work, but it changes the thing. Well, I'm having fucking deja vu. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Been here before. So it this is Twilight the... <laughs> Where are we? Oh Did we gosh. slide into a parallel it's a liminal space? <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, so it changes the, the nature of the thing. So, I mean, if you're performing... I mean, you can think of like Twitter, you can think of social media, you can think of TikTok, Instagram, also as performative in their own way. But then 
you are distributing to an audience that you're kind of hoping is there and then you're having to kind of play with and embody whatever aesthetic is like hot at the moment or whatever you know the algorithm is going to um whatever the algorithm is going to like so then there's another thing you kind of start to perform for the algorithm you think that 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 becomes like your first point of call it's your first audience member that you have to keep in mind so like there's certain things that you know you can't do because the algorithm will censor you you'll get shadow banned like una has been and at the same time there's certain things that you know you have to do so you have to show for example if we're talking purely instagram i know if i show just the right amount of skin in the right way then the algorithm loves it but if i show the wrong skin in the wrong way like mm, no that doesn't that doesn't pass that doesn't fly and like you can ju it just it's so obvious like if you just look at if i look at my own photos that i have posted it's so so clear like which ones we can say the algorithm likes but also like just appeal to like a wider population but my question for myself and I don't know, it's a hypothetical question. Is it that it's actually appealing to more people or is, are more people seeing it because the algorithm liked it? Like, does the algorithm really like love that much that anytime I post something where I'm cute with my partner, it's like, oh my God, everyone loves it. Or is it people really like it? Or is it some weird combination of both? I don't know. So if the algorithm becomes your audience, it changes the conversation. Una, to you. It's like a self-perpetuating like um, dragon almost. Like it says that this is what you eat and then it's simultaneously feeding you. It says that this is what you eat and it's simultaneously feeding you. And then I will say that like the, the joy, the joyest, wow, big words here. The most joyful experience that I've had on Twitter kind of in inspecting this uh, audience and especially Lori, like you and I can riff off of this for a while because it was so much fun. Like, interacting with AI accounts that were semi-autonomous and semi-algorithmically um, semi driven. Like one night I remember like they commented on the milking the artist piece and then we literally went back and forth for like 30 minutes just kind of asking all these questions and it didn't really matter who was on the other end of it, whether or not it was like a program or an algorithm or human. Hi, Akuchi. Um <laughs> You know, it doesn't really matter what it is. And I think that that's one area that I've seen Twitter, particularly like Excel at, is offering this kind of AI input where you don't know who you're interacting with and the anonymity of that character as human or non-human as the like trying to differentiate where the layers of sentience are. It's fascinating. And like that to me is very fun. Um, so that's what I wanted to add that it hasn't been all bad. <laughs> it's been like two good accounts. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. I think with milking the artist's success in terms of the algorithm, um, Una, it was you who had let me know about uh, Pussy Riots. Very similar performance of sorts uh, in the last few days where they very similarly, I think they burned, burned something or other um, for a piece called Putin's Ashes, which here for. Um, but then they sold it potentially to the Dow that they own and operate, um, which uh, feels strikingly similar to what you two did with Milking the Artist, perhaps uh, just gaining more visibility because they're a more visible group with a wider reach. Um, 
but the reason <laughs> I think that's interesting is because when I think about milking the artist as being, you know, the kind of progenitor of this idea and who knows if, you know, pussy riots, Putin's ashes is going to then lead to more kind of imitators or influences. But I think that in crypto art specifically, we've seen a huge predilection and an emphasis on exalting things that are first. Uh, right. And we see that with the crummy squiggles of art blocks. And we see that with crypto punks, people put clout um, and people put financial weight behind things that were there first. Right. And I guess my question to the floor, Colburn, maybe we can start with you just because you've been in the space the longest is where did this kind of obsession with being first come from? And why do you think it's had such a hold? We'll talk about something that the algorithm loves. It must love that word. And people love that word. Def Beef has like the all time greatest collection of of algorithmically generated first firsts. It's a 10,000 collection before 10,000s were hot. And it's just, it's amazing. I encourage people to check it out. Where do, uh, Because it makes people, first and foremost, it makes people really angry because whatever you're claiming to be the first at, undoubtedly you are not, right? <laughs> so like, exactly. And then if you want to get like ultra derivative and say like you are the first to do like this thing with this caveat, with this caveat, and like say... ABC banana in that order, like, sure, of course you're first. It's, it's, it could not be more meaningless. Yeah. It's interesting though, because we do, even without the reality of who's first and and who's not first, right. There's still a push to position oneself as if they're first, right. It's the marketing, but that's again, I think, kind of unique to crypto art because it's not like Dali was the first surrealist, even though he's the most thereafter successful, nor was Warhol the first pop artist. And even if they were, that's not really part of their legend. Um, yet still here we remain kind of caught like weirdly in the middle of crypto culture, kind of forging this new identity for itself away from art culture, but also taking this piece of like crypto culture, right? Where, you know, Ethereum still maintains its cultural capital because people were building on it long before um, there were any other competing blockchains. So the fact that it was first was a strategic advantage in terms of the quality of the product that it offers. Um, yeah, look, to be fair, we weren't even like the first museum of crypto arts, you know, but we didn't know we weren't the first until like six months after the project was born. We already had the website. We already had all the names. We already had like so what, is, what does it mean? Nobody knows everything, right? Even the research that you do will never direct you to what actually is. So blockchain is kind of cool because like it can be timestamps that it could be the first and there's proof there. But, you know, no human really will ever do that digging. I think that's all going to be automated in the future. And that has but such I, a relation. To, oh, go, Larry, go. No, I, I'm just, I... I um i think with this i this i think there is a general like contemporary cultural obsession with being first and with innovation and with being like yeah i i think i think you're also onto something here that it's people are attracted to it for a reason and i'm i i have no like conclusion i'm just like mumbling in my mind and like is it is it intent is it um 
attached to an idea that if you're first, then you can be automatically the best. Or if you're first, then you have first dibs at the resources that are associated with this or like with crypto specifically, if you are the first in, you get it at a low price and then lucky you, it like skyrockets <laughs> the value later, but you were first. So you were like in among the first and you don't have to be the first, but you were like in the early days. So you could kind of catch and capitalize on the value. So I'm, I'm, I think there is a connection between this idea of being like first and the value that we assign to it. And maybe it doesn't work necessarily retroactively. So like we're not looking at artists and being like, oh, they were the first person to do this. Though we are sometimes. I think there is the innovation and artistry can be connected and then people can be celebrated for that. Um, but when we're thinking about like now, we're so saturated with content. We're so saturated with like connectivity that then when there's something that's new well of course it's appealing and if it's the first of the thing well it it adds a layer of excitement because that person was so clever to find something new in a world where we feel like there's no newness at the same time we're being like barraged with like look at this look at this look at this so I, I don't know the idea of first somehow like allows something to emerge from the barrage does that make sense Una? Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, and the I, I think it all makes sense. And I think that the, there is a certain linkage of what you're talking about. And like, I've examined this in my own mind, so it probably won't make sense when I try and articulate it out loud. But there is a relationship between kind of, you know, being new to an idea, being first to crypto, being first to NFTs. Like if you go back to the digital like art conference that happened with the Rare Papers in like 2018, like those people, there is a certain degree of like a willingness to be very fringe in the art world. There is a willingness to be very fringe in terms of conceptualizing what art is and what digital identity is and digital ownership is that, you know, there's merit associated with being willing to go that fringe to layers of knowledge. And I understand why people would want to be like protective over that and why people are like, you know, wear this badge of honor in the Twitter bios of like, this is the time when I first minted because it does mean that you had some degree of like knowledge or experience or depth. And like, I want to validate that as like a very, um, I think that's special, but I think this notion of like first, it's very like, whoa, stroke the bell ends, mate. It's like, you're really, you're really kind of like massaging the wrong angle of it. And one thing that I've kind of noticed is interesting. And like, you know, I think that maybe Colbon, you're one of the few that I know that doesn't actually do this, but there's like a layer of like OG that it's so hard to communicate with if you are new because of the constant barrage. And I totally, in some way, I understand and I respect and I, I get the barrage and how that would be deflating. But it's almost like there does need to be a council of elders that you can go to and be like, cool, these are like the NFT OGs. And it's not fucking NFT now. So, like, you know, like, don't go looking there for your information because that's going to lead you down, like, one circle jerk that just, like, is not actually what the ethos of crypto art is about. And, like, also this relates deeply to Ursula Le Guin's, um, words, um, handbag theory of literature, that the first tool is, like, traditionally attributed to an axe or a sword or, like, some type of, like, instrument used to slice but the first tool is actually a bag that we use to carry the baby so mm. you know like all of these ideas that we talk about in crypto we also have to remember that these are nowhere near new they're just different iterations of things that have been evolving for like a while so i will pass the mic back to 
you next. <laughs> well, so this is making me think about a quote uh, from Claire Silver's website that I kept running into when I was writing about her last month, and which I found incredible, which is with the rise of AI for the first time, the barrier of skill is swept away. Taste is the new skill, right? And of course, that's AI specific. But in another sense, the crypto art space specifically is a glut of artistry, right? And really, really, really like palpably skillful artistry, right? Whether there are artists who are making incredible amounts of sales or not, like what I think we can agree on is that from all corners of the globe, you know, as you go down your Twitter feed, you are constantly coming in contact with artists who have a unique style and also have an incredible amount of technical skill, right? And so I think that does kind of, it does make these secondary denominators of talent more important, right? To go back to the Warhol and the Dali example, there weren't a thousand surrealists competing for the crown of, you know, uh, alpha surrealist, right? Una, are you timing out for me? Yeah, yeah, you're getting timed Dali out. Was like, Dali was like a wife beater. Like, and we only know his name because the people that chose to write the books were about him. Like, there's literally like, you know, everyone thinks that like Kandinsky is the father of abstract expressionism. No, it's Hilda Ofklint. And it wasn't until like a documentary came out two years ago that everyone was like, oh, wow, maybe like it was this person who actually did it. Like, even the way that we disseminate information that has such, you know, like... It, the history sorry that's my dog jazz even like the history books that are going on about it like that's a centralized form of algorithm that's pushing one idea so like even when we're internally referencing these things as static we need to remember that this is not static knowledge like knowledge that came before and is still very malleable because we're still trying to question like where it came from and i've recently been going on this like huge thing about anyone who like references picasso or dali and i'm like <sighs> they were both white feet <laughs> that that was only to say look I'm more of a, you know, Leonora Carrington guy myself, <laughs> but it was only to say that in the cultural imagination, right. Or like the, the popular understanding of the form, there is usually one figure deserving or not is a kind of, at least in my eyes, kind of outside the conversation. One figure always comes to the forefront, right? It's the Kandinsky's, it's the Basquiat's, it's the Mondrian's, it's the, um, the Warhol's, right. Whether, the, I guess the point that I was trying to make regardless is that there was still some technical skill involved, right? Whether Dali, for, to continue the example, is the most technically skilled of the surrealists is up for debate, but there at least is an agreement that there was technical skill here, right? And I think whereas we look now that everybody has technical skill, things like being first or the posturing of being first become more important because... You know, the taste, the timeline, the who had the idea, you know, beforehand, right? Who had the vision? All of those things now start to factor into our, our idea of quality. But um, I love this idea, Una, that you brought up, right? About the kind of artistic continuum being written by scholars and history professors and whatever kind of subverted academia has decided to exalt certain characters. So I was mm -hmm. wondering... Uh, in your perspective or from your opinion, is there a way to avoid that in the space we're in now, right? As the story of crypto art gets written, probably against a lot of our will, do you see avenues towards 
preserving a more truthful or at the very least a more diverse record of what's going on here than I think we can all imagine will be put down? I think that's a really good question. And it makes me think of two things. One being like, yes, inextricably, because blockchain like has a proof, you know, timestamp like Cobalt mentioned earlier, and that will inevitably be helpful um, for authorship, for kind of like who did what and when. Um, but I'm sorry, I'm just checking out my dogs behind me. Um, but I think that when you look at knowledge, and this is like a Donna Haraway here, like situated knowledge, that knowledge is always in a web. And so a web is always in continuous motion. Jazz, really, right now, come here. But um, knowledge is always in continuous motion and it's always, a, it's never a fixed or static point. And wherever you're at in that web is the knowledge for that angle, right? So we could both be looking at the same central point, but if I'm looking from down here and you're looking from up here, we're both mm -hmm. seeing two different angles to the same degree of knowledge. And so I think even spreading an idea like that, like knowledge is always situated, it localized the perspective of which you're addressing it from, enables this kind of perceiving of knowledge as like 360. And that might sound quite basic, but I know in my personal life, like I really didn't understand that for so long, the things or ideas that I thought were very fixed and very structured were not. And even when I go to like thinking back, come here Jess, of when I first got into crypto, I had like a massive amount of respect for certain artists or certain institutions. And I thought that they were all like, wow, how are they getting this much press or this much attention? And the more that I just kind of dug into them, I was like, oh, this person always gets written about by this institution because they're <laughs> actually own this. And, and this person pumps this person's bag because they have this, the same way of like, you know, I'm just like on a roll of shitting on them right now. So let's just like continue. <laughs> NFT now, like I was always like, oh, how do these artists like get featured on NFT now? And it was like, oh, let's go to Matt Medved's wallets, right? guess who's in them, the artists that get featured. And it's like totally like kind of, I think that we need to have like a mass stripping of like knowledge as an independent thing that we each create from our own that is so distinct from any type of institution that tries to claim that it has a degree of kind of media literacy. Now, obviously this is everyone but Mocha. Mocha is the original unsellout. So all the article that they wrote about us is totally true and believe every word. Oh, I'm a fucking sellout. <laughs> Although I did buy I did buy Una's piece before we did all this stuff. So we'll it's true. And Cole, you should buy more. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. I will I literally like write anything well. for likes. <laughs> and that is uh, how many likes? What's the threshold? You can't eat how likes. Many... Ken, I don't know. <laughs> we have a piece in the Genesis collection called Thought Eating Vitamin Like. And uh, it's, it's this really grotesque kind of like 3D sculpture of... Uh, I was what? so angry when I saw that Mocha had that in their permanent collection that I went on like a Twitter rampage at Mocha and I was like, why does this belong in there? What does it say about women? I don't know if any of you remember that, but I okay. do, I remember. <laughs> okay, for what it's worth when I was going through the Genesis collection and writing pieces, I did kind of excoriate that piece because I don't like it. But the point remains that there was at least one artist uh, who was proffering the idea that you could eat likes. Colburn, do you remember off the top of your head who created that piece? Yeah, it's ambiguous. Ambiguous. It's ambiguous. Shout out Ambiguous. I met Ambiguous once in Central Park. Like on purpose? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I loved their work. I loved everything they created. I think it's a test. I think somebody that got totally steamrolled, like independent thinker, and totally just like steamrolled, kicked out of the space. Pour one out for our fallen homie. Ambiguous. <laughs> we we see you. I hope whether they're we, still making art. Whether yeah. we like your work or not, we see you. Um, I'd like to just quickly return to the idea of context. Um, <laughs> how was that for a segue? Perfect. Just, well that, done. That's a that's a battering ram of segue. Uh, but Lori, so uh, we were talking about artistic context, right? And I think that a context that has not extrapolated itself out into the public imagination, like the surrealist or the pop artist, is performance art. I don't have a reason for that necessarily. Perhaps you could offer a reason, but I was wondering, like, if you were writing the, you know, if if you were that subverted academia um, persona and you were writing this history of performance art or providing context, like, where would you start? because I would like to know, and I would bet, no offense to our listeners, but I would assume that most people generally don't have like a solid grasp on the best of the best con- uh, performance art. The best of the best. You're Maybe not the me- Oh, God. Um, where would I start for the history? Yeah, who's the first, right? Yeah. <laughs> who's the first? Who's the original performance artist? I was just going to say that. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus was the original performance artist for sure. Um, you know, son of God, the whole thing. It was it was a big show. Um, no, I... God. I think that was a ripoff, actually. There was an Egyptian who was doing it first, so... <laughs> You're right. You know what? Just another way. Just, like, dial back. Let's just dial back even further um, maybe if we go to a like parallel plane, we can like zoom out and we look. No, actually, it was the aliens who colonized uh, planet Earth. I think they're probably the first performance artists. And then they were like, actually, this is too much work. We'll just get them to do it for us. So we're all performance artists performing for the aliens who colonized us. I, like that I think take. that I think Lori, that Lori, if life yeah. is performance art, are <laughs> we the artists or are we the paint? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I think it depends, you know, I think sometimes you can be paint and sometimes you can be the artist and it depends on the circumstance and maybe it depends on you. Some people are more paint than artists. Some people are more artists than paint. (laughs) Um, I'm just bullshitting. So no, but I think we, we can go back to the original question, which is like history of performance art. Um, but I still don't really have like a firm answer for that. Like, which is like you who gets your goat, at, right? Who gets my goat? Oh, I mean, like the daughter. This is Lori Baldwin's history of performance art. Does it, does it have to be? <laughs> it, it, it does. I, okay, fine. It has to be. Um, my history of performance art. I mean, Marina Abramovich is like a very obvious one. She like captured my heart from a very young age and I was like, you're amazing. I, I, I you know, I think she is like, she, she's not the first, but she's like up there for me and like the canon, the people who are like really breaking the boundaries and really doing lots. Uh, like she just, she's done, she has such an incredible body of work. And I think, what I really like about her and as like a through line in her work is 
her quality of presence. And this goes back to something I was saying earlier. I think one of the things that she really like nails is this like um, idea of inviting being seen, which I have to credit a collaborator, Luisa Moraes, who like shared this idea with me, this idea of inviting being seen. So you as a performer aren't there necessarily to like blast and take up lots of space, maybe, but like it comes from the original point of like, you're opening up the invitation for the audience to to look at you and you're inviting this gaze. And I think this is really nice and it's something that I see in Marina's work that she really, really does. She has this like really calm, like almost matter of fact energy. You can see it in some of her pieces that she's there and she's there with you and you're having this experience together. And this for me is the foundation for any piece of performance. So I'm just gonna leave you with her as my, <laughs> like she gets my go for sure. It's- that's fair. Well, maybe as like, you know, a kind of final capstone question, but I think that that would be a lot of people's an- answer, right? And I and rather I think that Marina um Abramovich uniquely amongst the grander artistic continuum is at the forefront of her field and agreed upon as such by those with any kind of fleeting knowledge. So I guess the question is and especially after having heard you two talk really um, animatedly about like the Gorilla Girls and Valley Export, right? These really important feminist performance artists and the kind of continuum of feminist performance art, which is like why in performance art uniquely, is there this kind of continuum in history of like uh, sexual discussion of femininity of gender discussion where that really seems to be lacking in basically every other like nameable artistic movement? I mean, I can kick us off and then Laurie. Yeah, I, I I can't really speak to why other women would do it, right? I can obviously have a clear understanding, but I think that for me, performance art felt so natural because almost, you know, and it goes back to like a ways of seeing by John Berger, like, uh, a dissection of it that as soon as you, <laughs> also, um, the second sex, it opens, right? The second sex, wow, I'm just jumping around really quickly. The second sex opens with... Um, a sentence about when babies are born in this French hospital, the boys get a sticker that say, I'm a boy, and the girls get a sticker, yay! <laughs> and the girls get a sticker that says, um, it's a girl. So that kind of objectification and that kind of like commodification of the identity of girlhood, of womanhood, of all of those things begins so young. And so for me, always kind of being very aware that there was always a layer of performance to my life, (laughs) whether or not I wanted it, I was always a point of gaze or always a point where people would project this imagery onto me. Um, It only seemed natural to then try and use that in a way where it felt like I could have some degree of artistic expression through the body, right? And performance art is always contextual, durational, and not always of the body now that I'm thinking about it, but mostly of the body. So this idea of, yeah, using reality as a canvas in a place where already as women, you get looked at in so many different ways. Already as women, you're perceived in so many different ways. And like I said this on the podcast I did with Colbon, but like my entire life, I've been very aware of people looking at me. And so now as Una, I do these outrageous kind of outfits, costumes, everything. And it's like, good luck not fucking looking at me. And that is like a little act of defiance that I like. Um, Mademoiselle Laurie? Oh, I have many thoughts on this actually. Um, 
so, so, okay, if we're going like from the gender theory angle, and we think about what Judith Butler, Judith, sorry, Judith Butler writes about gender being performative. It's exactly this example that you are assigned one at birth and then you are like essentially expected to perform this gender role for your life. And this is the like expected social performance that we're all engaging in. And she talks about this, I, this, um, the speech act, so like the moment that the child is born, then the speech act itself of assigning gender is also performative, but it's also transformative. It does something and it changes the nature of this person's reality because they now have to be X, Y, Z. So this is like one side. So I think there is something inherently performative about gender, period, just how it is. So that's how I think of it. And then if we think about femininity, there's a lot of, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the author right now, but I read this really wonderful article about um, drag and why drag queens tend to have a, like a lot more visibility than drag kings. And her theory was that femininity is much more performative. So we're expected to perform at like a higher, a kind of like a more overt and higher, I don't know if higher is the right word, but it's... Um, more extroverted, more fabulous, more makeup, clothes, hair, flashy, shiny, all these things are like associated inherently, uh, not inherently, but associated socially with femininity. So if femininity is more performative, then you can only, that is the only surface on which you can then keep mm. performing. Whereas performing masculinity is like a downplay, right? I mean, I'm talking for being really, really binary here because, of course, there's a lot of people doing drag who are really, like, fucking it all up and, like, putting <laughs> things on their head and doing a really amazing, amazing, amazing work. So if we're, if we're being, like, super binary about it, um, yeah, we, we know a lot. Of, we know a lot of drag performers. Um, but if we're being super binary, there is something that's, like, extrovertly performative about femininity. And so then you can use it as a canvas for subversion. And I think that's what a lot of, I think that's what Guerrilla Girls are doing. I think that's what Valley Export is doing. It's kind of taking the, the social frame and being like, yeah, we see what you're doing here and I'm going to play with it. And I'm going to make you, I'm gonna turn on its head or I'm gonna turn up the volume on it, which will maybe just get your attention. like nudity sexuality can be a gateway drug into something else into something deeper into opening up doors for provocative thought and i think it's a handy tool and i am the same like I, i'm i'm the same i am um similarly to una in my practice as a performer i there was a point where i really started to see that oh this is something i can use and this is something I can fuck with. And this is something that will absolutely get people's attention. And now that I have their attention because they think I look hot, now I can <laughs> say something interesting. Now I, and I'm not saying this is the only mode of performance and I have many and Una has many, but I think it's one, I think it's a very handy tool, especially when you're doing guerrilla performance, especially when you're trying to catch attention really quickly, especially if we go back to performing for the algorithm, coming full circle. If you're performing for the algorithm, the more fabulous you look, the better the algorithm's gonna like you. And then you can say something cheeky, smart, provocative, whatever. But 
it gets attention. So it's but they'll just they'll just think you're a thought for likes, right? <laughs> Mocha, well, I'm not gonna give up on that piece just so you know. Either way, it, connection, it's... either way it explains my lack of engagement. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, you very much, everyone. I appreciate it. Now that I know it's my appearance and not just a, a, a fleeting thought. <laughs> um, speaking of appearances, uh, it appears that we are out of time for today. Another sterling segue. Um, this, is, this conversation has truly been a pleasure. Um, I'd like to, on the record, on the stream, thank Una and Lori Baldwin for joining Colborne and I tonight. Um, thank you so much. And thank you to all of our listeners for coming along with us on this journey. We love you we really do uh, <laughs> we really do we really, <laughs> really love you and if you get one thing out of this conversation it's that we're desperate for your engagement all four of us so please give Lori a reason to stay on twitter um una's having a bad day throw her a like and um i'm like 180 followers away from a thousand so if you have to just make a couple of accounts and give me a all your friends yeah yeah, the writing's good too so anyways oh, God. <laughs> this has been another edition of mocha live it's been a pleasure having you it's been a pleasure being had i'm sure and uh we'll speak to you all next week thank you thank you, thank you. Thank you. Come on. i love you laurie <laughs> love you too